Hi, my name is Wendy Weber. And my name is Sydney Bowie. Welcome to Nobody Chooses Homelessness. A podcast dedicated to changing the cultural narratives about homelessness and shedding light on how we can mobilize to be part of the solution. In this podcast, we'll talk to everyday people, experts, entrepreneurs, and activists who are helping their unhoused neighbors find their way home again. We work for City Relief, a nonprofit organization dedicated to serving people facing extreme poverty and homelessness. City Relief shows up weekly as a mobile outreach offering people free meals, supplies, and connection to resources for housing, employment, and health care. More importantly, we offer people friendship, community, and belonging. We both have years of experience working systemically and on the ground to end homelessness. We believe that in order to end homelessness, it's going to take a holistic approach with people from all walks of life helping their neighbors in need. Today, we have the honor of speaking with Deborah Berkman, coordinating attorney with the New York Legal Assistance Group's Public Benefits Unit. Deborah is an expert on poverty, public interest, and civil rights law. She founded the Shelter Advocacy Initiative, an area of NILAG that provides representation to people experiencing homelessness and fights to ensure that single adults and families receive habitable emergency shelter and housing subsidies to transition to permanent housing. Deborah is not only an accomplished attorney, but also an adjunct clinical law professor at Brooklyn Law School, where she teaches classes on poverty, public interest, and civil rights law. Deborah's career has been devoted to fighting for the disenfranchised, and she has worked at the New York Civil Liberties Union, the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, and in private practice. With a background like that, it is no surprise that Deborah is making a significant difference in the lives of people experiencing homelessness. We are thrilled to have her on our show today to share her insights on public benefits, housing, and civil rights law. Good morning, Deb. We're so glad to have you back. Remind us a little bit about NILAG, what it means, what it does. How, how did you start working there? So NILAG is a free legal services provider, basically a free law firm for low-income New Yorkers. Um, it stands for the New York Legal Assistance Group. And if you've heard of probably something like legal aid, it's very similar to legal aid, except for that a New York legal aid has a, sim- a civil and a criminal practice. And at NILAG, we only do civil work. So how did I start working at NILAG? Well, this is a really interesting story. So how this is basically how did I get involved with civil rights? So right after law school, I worked at a private law firm and I did a lot of um, plaintiff side employment discrimination matters. And I also worked with um, a really brilliant public interest lawyer there and a civil rights lawyer and his name was Norman Siegel. And he didn't work at the firm, but he rented space in the firm and we did cases together. So I got to work with him and he had a really thriving civil rights practice. Um, So we did a lot of police misconduct work and we did a lot of First Amendment work. And it was, you know, incredibly exciting, you know, and I love the actually the plaintiff side employment discrimination work, too. That's also civil rights work, you know, all of it. But I really love doing that type of work as opposed to just like general commercial litigation. It's where my heart lied. But I did not like taking clients money. When you work in a private firm, you have to take clients' money either by either the client will pay you, you know, as you go along your hourly rate, or at uh, if the client wins a settlement, you you take a little part of their settlement as payment. 
And I just hated taking part of the settlement. So what I decided to do is I wanted to take take my show on the road and, and start working for a, uh, a free legal services provider. So I wouldn't have that kind of relationship with the clients. And NILAG is a very interesting place for impact litigation. So what I do is called, or what I did at that time, and it's a little bit different than what I do now, is called impact litigation. So it, you bring a case in court about a systemic denial of a benefit or a right in order to bring sort of policy change or wide reaching change. And it's a way that with, you know, less effort, you can help a lot of people. And that's sort of as opposed to individual work where a, a lot of my work that I do now is that I'm, I'm advocating or litigating on behalf of one person, not to change a policy, but to change that person's life experiences. So at the time, I was just doing impact litigation, and there are a lot of different nonprofit organizations that do impact litigation. But what's very interesting about NILAG is that the, the way that the cases come to the impact litigation unit is that people who are working in individual services uh, keep an eye out for sort of repeated denials that they are seeing. So for instance, it, in in the public benefits world, if we see that the Department of Social Services is constantly making mistakes on a certain part of someone's pe- public benefits application, that would be an, an issue that would be ripe for impact litigation. Because if we're seeing a lot of it, it means there's many, many more people who aren't making it to us, who aren't getting their public benefits because of this mistake that DSS is making. So it's really all of the impact cases that NILAG brings come from repeated problems that that the staff attorneys and paralegals in the units see. And so I really was really drawn to that impact litigation unit and that model because I think that it's very hard to litigate a case about something that you don't have a lot of subject matter knowledge about. And so and it's also really hard without the people on the ground doing the work. So that's really how I, I got to NILAG. And I love doing impact litigation at NILAG. And after that, I actually, I left for a while and I went to the New York State Civil Liberties Union for a while. And then I had children and I was home for a few years. But NILAG always really had my heart and I really wanted to get back into the workforce. And, you know, NILAG was always also very supportive of parents coming back to work. And so I had this wonderful boss at the time who said, you know, why don't you come back and... There's room in the uh, Medicaid and elder law practice, and you can work part-time, and and we can figure it out. And so I went back to NILAG, and I started doing the individual work that I do now, and I started serving clients one-on-one, and I had never really done that in my career. Obviously, we had plaintiffs in our litigation, but I never had a part of my career where I was just sort of where where the, the big payoff was getting someone's Medicaid reactivated. And... I absolutely loved it. And it was just life-changing for me. Like the feeling I got from getting someone's Medicaid reactivated was so much more intense than the feeling I got when I changed a policy that would help like a thousand people. And so mostly in law, people, you know, their goal is to get to impact litigation and impact litigation is like very sexy and it's like the elite unit of free legal services. And for me, I had the total opposite experience and I went from impact litigation to sort of serving people one-on-one, 
But in NILAG's model, I'm still able to do impact litigation. So at that point, I did Medicaid and, and elder law services. Now I, I mostly focus on people experiencing homelessness and public assistance and food stamps. But I'm still able to I'm still able to bring impact litigation because first of all, I'm fully trained in impact litigation. I worked in it for eight years solely. And second of all, I understand now I am the person on the ground. I can identify the issues and I know what issues are ripe for litigation and what issues are ripe for policy change and what issues I should be talking to local council members about. And so I work with the special litigation unit at, in bringing these cases. And the, the special litigation unit is the impact litigation unit. So that's really how I, I got my start at NILAG. And it's just, NILAG has always really been supportive of me and, and always has, you know, made a place for me to address the issues that I see on the ground and what needs addressing. Really, our whole shelter advocacy initiative, which is our homeless rights project, was born out of something that I saw happening. I saw a need for this type of work. And legally, it does have a homeless rights project, but it's just the one project and it's only a few people. And there was just so much more of this work that needed to be done. And I worked with NILAG to sort of create the space to, to do this work. And so it's that's why I've stuck with NILAG all these years. Um, it's also, I have a wonderful unit at NILAG. And I think that it's all like people who very much care about helping people access the benefits they need to live with dignity. And, you know, a lot of people have been in my unit for a very long time. I'm a woman in my 40s, and there are a lot of people in their 40s in my unit just doing their same job because we all really just care about the work. And it's so important for me to work in an environment where other people have the same mission. So that's really how I got started at NILAG and why I'm staying there after all these years. And, you know, I've done other things over the years. I worked for a little bit at Brooklyn Law. I mean, I am an adjunct law professor at Brooklyn Law School still, but I worked sort of in-house at Brooklyn Law School as a law professor for one semester. I wanted to really try it out and see if that would be something that I was more interested in. And while that was a wonderful experience, I kept being called back to NILAG because of just the amount of good work that I'm able to do while I'm at NILAG. And part of that good work is our, our partnership with City Relief. I saw that there was a need at City Relief and NILAG gave me the space to start, you know, intaking clients directly from the City Relief site. And that's just so important because a lot of our clients at City Relief don't have telephones. And so for me, I need to be on site and I knew I needed to be on site. And this is really like deep in the pandemic, but I knew that this is what I had to be doing if I wanted to actually be able to interact with my clients. At City Relief, we aren't the only ones in the business of helping people. This podcast is brought to you by our longtime supporters and friends at Buttafuoco and Associates. They are dedicated to helping people rebuild their lives after a serious injury. They are a national injury law firm that has won over 500 million in verdicts and settlements for people struggling to overcome medical malpractice, construction accidents, auto accidents, injuries, wrongful death, and workers' compensation. Their team of personal injury attorneys has a genuine passion for seeking justice, and they understand the hardships that come with debilitating injuries that change the course of someone's life. If you or a loved one has experienced a serious injury, our friends at Buttafuoco and Associates will take care of you. Contact them at 1-800-NOWHURT.COM 
or 1-800-669-4878. Yeah, that is a, that's awesome. As I've had the pleasure of being able to work alongside you a little bit on the street, I can um, definitely say I have seen so much your heart for people. Um, it's even interesting, like your, your, while you were drawn to NILAG was the fact that the impact litigation was coming from these personal stories that were starting to build up, right? It was, it was almost like you were always kind of being drawn to that place of wanting to be with people and wanting to connect with people and, and share their stories and walk alongside them. Um, just as someone who spends time referring people to a bunch of different services to be like, yeah, I'm gonna refer you to NILAG and to speak to Deb because I know you're not just gonna be a name. You're not just gonna be a number. You're not just gonna be a, you know, another case, but you're gonna be a person who is valuable to her and she actually wants to see you, you know, kind of grow and succeed what you need. So it's been a joy uh, being able to work alongside you. Thank you, Sydney. I really appreciate that. And you're right. I do think everything in my journey has led me here. And I also, I, I'm lucky because I have been a lawyer for almost 20 years. I've had a lot of different jobs and I can litigate and I can draft documents and I can help people with advanced planning and I have a lot of different skills. So that really lends itself to sort of like putting out fires at intake because <laughs> there's a lot of different issues that pop up and they're not all exactly in the public benefits field, but I can, I can pretty much direct anyone anywhere. I do think it's hard. There's a lot of, because there are so much more legal services uh, needs than there are legal services attorneys. So a lot of times when you give somebody a referral, I feel like it's very difficult for me when I give someone a referral because I have no idea if they're going to be able to make contact with that referral and if they're going to get a response. So if it's something that I can handle, I know it's in my control to actually close the loop. So that's, even if I can just give advice, giving advice to me, at least they got the advice. Yeah. I mean, obviously you've been doing this for, for a little while and you've kind of seen like you came alongside of us, um, right. The, you know, height of during the pandemic and you've been doing this before the pandemic during there's kind of a wind down here now. So you've seen what the scope has been like, the landscape has been like for someone who is struggling with, with homelessness. Um, for sure. And even when I wasn't with you, I mean, I was still a homeless rights lawyer. That's actually right. why we were together. So I, I've always had homeless clients throughout the pandemic. I mean, my practice uh, really ramped up through the pandemic, but it certainly is not winding down. So um, for someone who is like a, a single adult today, right now in, in the current climate, what, um, what is the process like for someone to get into emergency shelter? So if someone is a single adult, um, they would generally, and if they were open to going to a congregate shelter, and what that means is a shelter where there are multiple people sleeping in one room, they would apply at the single adult intake center. And uh, for men and people identify as male, it's in Manhattan. And for women and people who identify as female, it's in the Bronx. And they would um, go through an intake process, which is an assessment. There's a physical assessment. There's a number of interviews. Um, and then they would be assigned to an assessment shelter in the short term. And DHS would use that information to figure out where they would be assigned for a more long-term shelter stay. But that's the process for people who are able to go into congregate shelter. And there are people able to go into congregate shelter, many, many people who are able to go into congregate shelter. Those are not mostly the people that we see in our practice at City Relief. A lot of the people we see in our practice at City Relief are not able to go into congregate shelter. Now, why are they not able to go into congregate shelter? People have had traumatic experiences and they don't feel safe sleeping and being defenseless in a room 
with so many other people. And that's understandable. A lot of my clients have been either physically or sexually assaulted uh, while in congregate shelter or have been in congregate shelter and witnessed other people being physically or sexually assaulted. And they are just too afraid to go. So it's not that they don't want to go into shelter. They cannot go into shelter. And I might have mentioned this on the last podcast, but people say, why do people want to stay out on the street? And it's not that they want to stay out on the street. It's that they haven't been given an alternative that they can access. So I, I sort of liken it to someone who uses a wheelchair for mobility. If someone used a wheelchair for mobility, you wouldn't expect them to be able to access a shelter that only had stairs. It, it would just be a non-starter. And that's what it is for our clients. They cannot access the shelter because they've had, they have some sort of disability or, or trauma response that prevents them from being able to do so. They don't want to sleep outside. They want to sleep inside, but they want to be safe. And it's just, you know, for a lot of people, they do not feel safe in that setting. And it's understandable. When I hear people's stories, I, I completely sympathize. I don't know that I would feel safe in that setting either. For those people, what we try to do is we try to help them get into the city's low barrier system. And the city did uh, design a shelter system within DHS that caters uh, to people who have been experiencing long-term street homelessness. And it's it's sort of, when I say a low barrier system, it's a system with a lot less rules. Um, so if you miss curfew, your bed isn't given away. Um, and it's more, it's less congregate uh, setting and more uh, single, double, triple rooms. And a lot of our clients who can't stay in a true congregate setting of 10 or 12 or 50 or 100 people in a room can stay in that type of setting. So, and it's called the safe haven system, but there are safe havens and then there's stabilization placements. And, but there are very, very few of them, far fewer than there need to be given uh, our, our street homeless population in New York City. And so if the client tells me that they can only be in a small room, I believe them. So first of all, it's the only place that they are able to access, but even, and I've also seen with my own eyes, how wonderful that system can be for someone who can stay in it and who can eventually transition to permanent housing. Because shelter should only be a very, very temporary situation. It should never be a place to live. It should be a place between places to live while a person gets on their feet, gets their finances in order. And I've seen a lot of my clients successfully transition to permanent housing from safe haven who had been out on the street for a very long time. And so for me, getting a client in there is really, really, you know, putting them on the path to success. Amazing. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I don't think a lot of people think, OK, so there's this system that should work for everyone without understanding there's someone who may have experienced physical or sexual trauma in that setting. And it isn't something that works for everyone. Um, and there's been a lot of controversial initiatives from Mayor Adams' office um, in his term so far. But one of them, um, it's another uh, kind of blanket um, solution um, where there's involuntary hospitalization of individuals experiencing homelessness who exhibit mental health challenges. Um, and so I would imagine that doesn't work for everyone exhibiting mental health challenges. So have you seen this? How's that impacted your work? So, I mean, I've seen it even before Mayor Adams announced the initiative. I mean, sort of initiatives in this direction have been going on for the last year. 
Um, and I have seen clients involuntarily hospitalized. I, I think a couple of things. First of all, I think it's illegal. I think that um, people are not supposed to be, uh, I, I should really say incarcerated, not involuntarily hospitalized unless they're a danger to others or themselves. And I think that living outside, I know that living outside does not count and poverty does not mean that that someone is a danger to themselves. Um, and the current position that the mayor is taking is that poverty renders people unable to care for themselves. So basically, this is just criminalizing poverty. That's the first thing I would say. Second of all, it doesn't work. People, when my clients are involuntarily taken to the hospital, I mean, sometimes they don't even make it to the emergency room. Sometimes they just, the emergency room is not going to involuntarily hospitalize people. Our hospitals are absolutely full. There is no space for people. They just, sometimes they get out the same night. Sometimes they get out a day or two later. I've never seen it turn into a long-term hospitalization. And then they're just right back where they started and they go to the very same spot on the street. So using this as an initiative to get people off the street, to me, with my clients, has had zero success. Maybe I, I know the mayor's office says that this is a successful initiative, but I think it's cruel. It's inhumane. It is the criminalization of poverty and it's completely ineffective and it's a total waste of government resources. I mean, all of that work to just get someone off the street for an evening or two days. Why? Why not instead put that effort into trying to help them change their lives and make permanent change and come inside and transition to permanent housing? That's what that money should be spent on. We need lasting change for people. We don't need a Band-Aid. Yeah, definitely. I, I want to go back one, um, and I think it kind of connects to this as well, when you're talking about seeing how you've seen success with people going from safe havens to uh, to permanent housing, right? Um, what are some of the barriers for someone? So I, just a story from the street, I was talking to a guy who had, he was staying in a shelter. Um, he had a specific issue with that shelter, did not want to stay there. Um, he, they told him basically he would have to stay out of the system for a year. He stayed on the street for a year, went back into the shelter system, and they sent him back to the same shelter that he was having issues with. Um, what is the holdup? What's the reason he's not able to be, you know, getting into a safe haven? He I think he had actually a, a, looked like he had some um, some mental issues as well. So what, what, why is there or is there some barriers where someone's clearly needing to be, you know, transferred to a safe haven and within the system or the shelter that they're going to, that need isn't being addressed? So there's a lot of questions you just asked there, and there's a lot of situations you just described. So I want to start with the policy in single adult shelter is that single adults are assigned to a shelter for 365 days uh, af for after either the day they have been assigned to that shelter or the last night they slept in that shelter, whichever is later. So a single adult can go back to their assigned shelter even after 364 days of absence. And that is still their assigned shelter. Now they won't have a bed. They have to wait for someone else to miss curfew to get a bed, but that is their assigned shelter. And it is the policy of DHS that if pe single adults want to return to shelter, they have to return to their assigned shelter. There used to be a policy that people experiencing street homelessness were not eligible for a safe haven placement if they had an assigned shelter in the DHS system. The way to get rid of your assigned shelter in the DHS system was to stay out of the system for 366 days. 
That is not the stated policy of the Adams administration, but the line staff and the people who make safe haven assignments are still informally using that policy. So if they run into someone on the street, they'll check and see if they have an assigned shelter. And if they do, they just, they say, will you go to that shelter? And they drop them off there. And often they'll say, if you won't go to that shelter, we can't help you. So that is why that client uh, did that particular uh, or engaged in that particular behavior. Now, another thing I would say to you, Sydney, is why didn't you bring me this client? <laughs> because the way to, to challenge these things is lawyers and advocates and people speaking up because we can get shelter transfers for people who can be in the congregate system, but just can't be in their assigned shelter. One thing I will say, though, is after somebody has been on the street or living outside for a year, it may be that the safe haven system is better suited to their needs and they would have a greater likelihood of success if they were in the sort of softer landing um, safe haven system. And one of the things I like about the safe haven and the stabilization system, it is a little bit more geared to meeting, meeting the clients where they are. So, you know, helping people not have to conform to a certain way of being, but trying to help each person, you know, find success on their own terms. And that's really, you know, for a lot of my clients have been living outside for a long time, have, you know, have suffered, you know, physical ailments and, you know, probably a huge amount of anxiety and from being outside, probably having their belongings stolen and freezing and just having, you know, a real sense of unease. For those clients, it is best to, uh, at times, not always, but it can be best uh, for them to transition to a safe haven rather than the general shelter system. And then sometimes people are fine going back to the shelter system. Everybody is different. City Relief is a nonprofit dedicated to connecting people who are experiencing homelessness and poverty to food, clothing, and vital resources they need to survive. We show up week after week on New York City and New Jersey streets, regardless of the weather, providing meals and community to those who feel forgotten. We can only do this because of the generosity of everyday people like you who want to see a world where our homeless neighbors are cared for. To find out how you can give or volunteer and make a real impact on homelessness, click the link in the description of this episode. That, this has been super helpful for me just now. I did, I did, actually I saw him on a Thursday. So I referred to him to come to, come to meet with you on a Wednesday. Okay. Um, but just the fact that you're saying, I've heard from countless of you know, DHS outreach teams that they are not able to connect someone with a safe haven if they're already um, assigned to a shelter. Oh yeah, no, I've so that is not the I mean, case. I've worked with DHS outreach, I said that, and I don't blame DHS outreach. I mean, they're the line staff. The line staff is seeking orders from above. And I'm not even sure, I mean, I, I believe that the Adams administration believes that it has changed this policy. But if you change a policy, but don't adequately train on it, it doesn't matter if a policy has changed. I mean, does it matter if it's, uh, if it's a policy, if the practice is still ongoing? This is really good. This is really good. Thank you. This is- No, I'm happy, I'm happy to come in and educate on what people can and should do because yeah. people at this point, the Adams administration has made it very clear that nobody has to be out of their shelter. I mean, people need to be experiencing street homelessness to be eligible for a placement in the safe haven or stabilization system. That is correct. You don't have to be out of your shelter for a year. A lot of people will go to the shelter. They will try staying there for a week or two. They will do the best they can, and then they just can't. And those people don't need to stay on the street for a year. 
doesn't need to happen. But also, I mean, I've had a lot of clients at City Relief who have just come up to me and said, I just need to be in a shelter in the Bronx because that's where X is. And I am sleeping outside because my shelter is in Brooklyn and I, I can't get there. And that's, you know, a pretty easy fix, especially if they're willing to just go to a different congregate shelter. So uh, one of the other kind of uh, big issues that I've seen, um, especially like 14th Street has kind of become a hub for uh, migrant families that have been coming and trying to get assistance. What has um, serving those who are seeking asylum, what does that look like for you? How has kind of that crisis uh, worsened in the last, uh, I guess last year or so? Um, and where are you seeing these families end up as they're coming and, and looking for help? I mean, I have been serving the family since the first family that showed up at City Relief. <laughs> I have been doing it. I mean, it really picked up in May, I would say, before even the buses and, and Abbott and, you know, the politics. There were people coming on planes that had been put there by social service, like by nonprofits in Texas um, and just being bought plane tickets and coming here and, you know, and entering the shelter system, I think because we have a very robust shelter system, I mean, later it became much, much more politicized, but in the beginning, I think people were just looking for a place to go. And New York is the city of dreams. And this is where people come to find work. And this is where people come to start over. And, you know, New York is famous and, in some ways they're right. We do have commerce here. We do have work here. We do have, you know, everything you can think of. Um, so how has this worsened? Well, I mean, it's, it's worsened exponentially. Initially there were just a few clients, um, with families, uh, and with minor children, but not only families with minor children, a, a lot of single adults or like adults, what I call buddies, buddies who had crossed the border together and people arrive and they have, fled unspeakable horrors, like really things that I couldn't even imagine. And then they faced, you know, many more unspeakable horrors on their several month, you know, walking and raft trip over the border. And when they finally get here, they've been incredibly traumatized, but, you know, they're also incredibly gritty. Everybody wants to work. You know, the, the first question everyone asked me is, do you want me to get a job? I'm like, so that's not what I do, I'm a lawyer, but I will try to deal with your legal needs. Um, and it, you know, so the city has dealt with this issue in a variety of different ways. And, you know, a lot of the time I'm mad at the city and I'm against the city and, you know, I, I'm challenging city policies. But I want to say that the city has stepped up. I don't know if the city is going to continue to step up. Um, so first, uh, the city greatly expanded the Department of Homeless Services shelter system and opened, you know, this this number isn't accurate, but at least 40 new shelters to accommodate um, people uh, who are coming, crossing over the southern border. And a lot of those were family shelters and putting, you know, just an incredible amount of work and effort in. And there were bumps in the road and there were, you know, times that families slept in the intake office. And I heard, you know, there were times that the shelters didn't have water and there were times that, you know, and I could tell you story after story. But when we alerted DHS, Department of Homeless Services, that this was occurring, you know, they, they tried to fix it and they did. They put the effort in. And, you know, if it was a little slow, it did get done eventually. Now, what I will say is one thing that was really difficult is because 
the the sort of surge of people coming from the southern border happened at the same time that the eviction moratorium ended. So there was sort of like like a double surge going into shelter. And the city was well aware that the eviction moratorium was ending and that the shelter system was going to be flooded with individuals, particularly families. And the city did not appear to do anything to increase their vacancy rate to make room for these families. The knowledge about when the eviction moratorium was ending was public knowledge. Everybody knew about it. My non-lawyer husband knew about it. I, I mean, it was in the paper every day. And the city did not appear to take any any steps towards uh, preparing for that situation. So the shelter system quickly got overburdened, not only from, you know, Southern border crossers, but also from families who had been evicted. And I will blame the city for that. But the city quickly got it together and found placements for all of these people and expanded the Department of Homeless Services shelter system. Additionally, the city created a new shelter system. I would say in about October of 2022, the city opened a new uh, shelter system that uh, we call the HERCS. But these are shelters that are aimed uh, directly uh, to house people coming from the southern border and seeking asylum. And I don't know if you remember that there was a, a giant tent on Randall's Island. Do, do you all remember when they opened a tent on Ra Randall's Island and they were shuttling the uh, the migrant asylum seekers into this tent on Randall's Island. And I, I obviously thought that this was absolutely unacceptable and, and that, you know, everyone needs to be housed in a permanent structure, not in a tent. And the tent really, you know, really was never very popular and, and never very full. And so they, you know, the city wisely discontinued use of the tent soon and they started housing people in hotels. And now there is this new shelter system called the HERC system that um, people, when they get off the bus in Port Authority from Texas, are sort of taken to this new system. And the new system is run by our New York City Public Hospital uh, uh, network. It's the Health and Hospitals Corporation. It's now run by Department of Homeless Services. It has different services offered from the Department of Homeless Services um, um, shelters, some clients, some of my clients prefer to be in the HERC system. Some of my clients prefer to be in the Department of Homeless Services system. If you are a, uh, a Southern border crosser, you can choose to be in either. Um, and switch back and forth. Um, from my perspective, people, I, the Department of Homeless Ser Services system offers certain public benefits associated with it that the HERC system does not. So I would always encourage clients to do that. But I also would say that the HERC system doesn't have a congregate shelter for single adults. It's smaller rooms. And for a lot of people, that's much, much better than the congregate shelter system. The HERC system also helps people relocate in other parts of the country or in other countries if that's where they want to be. So I will say that people have been sheltered. And, you know, every time I get angry at the city, which is often for failing to comply with what I think their obligations are, I also have to say that we have the best shelter system in the United States. And it's the most robust shelter system. And we have a right to shelter. And a lot of places don't. So I, I recognize that it was hard and a surprise for the city to sort of deal with this influx of people. And, and they have done so. 
Now, Mayor Adams recently made some some remarks, uh, something along the lines of there's no more room in New York City and, and, and don't come here. And to me, that's absolutely outrageous because there's always room in New York City. But what I do think uh, this sort of crisis highlighted is that when people are let out of ICE detention or if they're apprehended at the border and then they're let out in the United States, they're not undocumented. They are allowed to be here awaiting their court date. But the federal government does not support these people in any way in how to live. So they're just sort of let out with a good luck. Hope you make it to your next court date. And that, and I think that the brunt of that can sometimes fall on New York City because we have a, you know, a wonderful social welfare system. And the, the federal government really needs to step in here and help these people who are here legally stay here and, and live and have jobs and have housing and, and help their children get enrolled in school and, you know, make sure they have food. This is, you know, this is the job of the federal government. So in some ways, I am sympathetic to to the New York City government and even in ways to the Texas government, because when people are come in, they are in Texas with no place to go and no way to get anywhere and no money and they need help. And, you know, these are future Americans. These are exactly the people we want in America. They are people who are fleeing horror in their home country and they're here and they want to be part of our society. They want to get jobs and they want to educate their children. And, you know, they, they are the people that we should be courting, not sort of not paying attention to. Right. Uh, that's so interesting. All of that. I love um, talking to you, Deb, because I find out new things and you have such kind of a, a higher view. You bring a lot of excellent information and point of view to the conversation. So it makes me think about, um, you know, a city relief is always trying to position ourselves to best serve um, those in need. What would you say, um, how could city relief be pivoting itself? We have like a, a three-year view of how we can best meet people in their need. Um, what, do you have any kind of perspective of your recommendation for us as a nonprofit? I, well, there are two different sort of different clients need different things, right? So it depends what client base we're looking for. So are we talking about people experiencing street homelessness? Are we talking about the southern border crossers? Like, who are we trying to help in this instance? That's the first question I have for you, Wendy, because I have different recommendations for the different groups. Fantastic. Why don't we start with the latter? People experiencing street homelessness who want to come inside, the biggest barrier uh, I have in helping them come inside is that they don't have telephones, so I can't find them. So often I'm sort of begging and negotiating with DHS over a series of days to, to try to make a placement with a client who wants to come inside and can only be in the low barrier safe haven or shelter system. But if the client doesn't have a phone, we cannot reach them to tell them where they should be going. And it's almost impossible to find them unless they come back the next week. And I'm sure they will try to come back the next week, but people who, who live outside have measurable challenges and sometimes they, they have to do something else. And I think that expansion of the city relief phone program to give to people who want to come inside would be tremendous. Now, I know that City Relief already does give phones away, but if you're asking what I think City Relief could do, I think massively ramping up the phone pro 
program would be a great first step. I also think that one of my lawyers or paralegals should be at every outreach. I think there should be someone there who can say, hey, no, this isn't right. You know, Sydney didn't know that what his client was going through or what his guest was going through was easily fixable with an email. There should be someone there who knows this information. And, you know, it's not going to be me. I can't go to every outreach and I have a whole law practice, but there are people that we could send there. I think that would be another incredibly important step. And I know that Josiah and I have talked about this. And, you know, obviously I believe that legal services attorneys are amazing in every instance. And, you know, I I think he agrees. I think it's, you know, just how do we grow the organization? Now, for the Southern border crossers, they have different needs. And I would say a few things for City Relief. I think that City Relief should start introducing some culturally appropriate food. I think that a lot of times, particularly on where at the sites where we know that we are going to get a lot of Southern border crossers and where we're going to get a lot of families, families, the children who just arrive here are not used to the American food and it's very hard for them to eat it and digest it. And they're in a new country. They are completely uprooted. Often they only have very few members of their family around and it is very hard for them to get the nutrition that they need. What City Relief could do is offer something more culturally appropriate. And I I, I can't imagine what that would be, be, but something where something Venezuelan, something along those lines. I do know that the soup is a staple of City Relief, and I I think it's great. And I'm not saying the soup shouldn't be an option. And I what I love about the soup is that it appears to be vegetarian and gluten-free. Yes, but I yes. do think if City Relief had the money to do so, to vary the soup menu and also add culturally appropriate food items, that would be great. Those are just the things off the top of my head. But I think City Relief, I, you know, one of the things I love about City Relief is that it pivots uh, in times of need. And it's, it is able to address, like, be nimble and address crises when they come up. And NILAG is the same way. You know, we do what we need to do to make sure that we are serving the people that need serving. And I think that City Relief already does that. And I think, you know, adding clothing is really important as as you have done and the socks and the partnership with Bombas. That's all really important work too. So I don't mean to denigrate anything City Relief has done so far, but if you were asking me for suggestions, those are the suggestions that I have. Yes. I also think that there should be the follow-up department is, is so important. The follow-up department is is just key. And I think that there should always be emphasis on growing the follow-up department. And for listeners who don't know what the follow-up department is, um, they work with people on a more long-term basis and they help them apply for benefits and they help them maintain their benefits, you know, up to and including what needs to be addressed by a lawyer. So they do the work on the ground and I sort of get involved at the appeal stage or at the transfer stage but they're the ones who identify the issues a lot of the time. And we need more of them. Everyone should be applying for public benefits. Every one of our clients who's eligible for cash public assistance or food stamps should have those benefits. So uh, an increase in the follow-up stuff. Yeah. 
No, and I always want to hear your thoughts and suggestion steps. So thank you for, again, sharing that. Um, it's kind of funny for me as a fundraising professional to say, well, we can do more with more money. But one thing I do want to say, even though that's true, is this is an organization where I've never seen how clearly a donation, a financial donation from someone actually makes an impact in people's lives. I know that's true in many organizations, but I can see from my point of view where this dollar can do this because we know exactly what we need. And if we, we can raise more funds, we can actually do that. Oh, I 100% agree. City Relief is where I gave my most charitable donations in the year of 2022. And I, it's, you know, it's sort of an odd pairing for me because I am an observant Jew and City Relief has, uh, you know, a, a Christian uh, underpinning. And it's not, I don't generally, not that I wouldn't, but that's just not generally where I put my money. I would generally try to give at least some to Jewish charities, but I see the work being done and I see how important my dollars are. And that is where I want to direct my funds. It just, I see every single time somebody gets a, a, like a burner phone and I'm able to place them in a cell phone in a safe haven. And then they transition to permanent housing. That was, it cost $50 to get someone off the street. Just 50. I might spend $50 a week on almond matcha lattes. I mean, I don't because my husband would kill me, but like, that is like, <laughs> I mean, to think that $50 could change someone's yeah. life is really yeah, absolutely. Sort of powerful. Absolutely. In that, in that same kind of theme, what is one thing uh, that an everyday person listening to this podcast could do to make an impact towards ending homelessness? I think that people need to show up and volunteer. And why do they need to volunteer? It's not that they are going to end homelessness by volunteering. People who don't work with people experiencing homelessness have certain prejudices and really just views, not mean-spirited, but just ignorance when it comes to people experiencing homelessness. And when they get to our sites and start working with our clients and our guests, they realize that everything they thought about why people experienced homeless is completely wrong. And they start seeing people as people experiencing homelessness as opposed to homeless people. And so the first thing that I really want people to do is get out there and meet our clients and try to understand that our clients are just like us. When I talk to, you know, I have a ton of families with minor children that I help. And those moms have the same concerns for their kids that I have for my kids, including what school their kids are going to, if it's going to prepare them, if they are going to have opportunities in life, you know, what their children's nutrition are. They're just like me. So I think the most important first step anyone can take is to volunteer. I also want to make a plug for paying attention to city politics and paying attention to what your council member is doing to help people experiencing homelessness and help people with less. Because you know, before I started doing this work, I didn't pay as much attention to what my council member was doing. But now I want to make it clear to her that I am your constituent. And when you take a certain position, you should be taking my position because you are here to represent me. And my position is, is that we should be treating people with dignity. And so please do not take any position that is contrary to my. Now, does she? Of course she does. She, but every, but she listens to her constituents and she acts accordingly. And then, so the more people who talk to their their council people and sort of go in and email and, and show up at things, the that will change policy. 
That's amazing. And that's good to hear because we say talk to your your politician and we think, I think, does that really make a difference? So I'm I'm encouraged when you've said that. In the oh, past. it very I'm much makes a difference again the today. Squeaky wheel gets the oil. Squeak, people, squeak. Squeak. Everybody squeak. Yeah. Because that's what we need to do. I mean, it's just also like just from a humanitarian perspective, I it's very hard. Like my children, they have, you know, they each probably have two winter coats. They have like the medium winter coat and the heavy winter coat. And that every child should have that. And it's it's not okay that my children sort of it, it it's hard to feel okay about like going on in your life and spending the money that you earn and sort of, you know, providing for your family when you know that so many families have so little. So I think that that is, you know, a lot of people, when you put it that way to them, there's a lot of people who aren't probably like politically engaged or super active, but also, you know, like me feel that as a parent, we want to make sure that other people's children are okay. For instance, my kids go to public school and they um, and there are kids experiencing homelessness in our public school and there are kids um, who uh, low income families in our public school. And there are so many parents in our public school who have means who who donate and and work for these families and and really want to help out. And and they're not people who are normally sort of drawn to charity. They just see what's going on with their own eyes. And they're like, oh, my daughter's friend needs this, right? And that sort of, but, and that sort of opens their eyes to sort of like, like, you know, puts a spotlight on the problem. I think we need to put a spotlight on the problem. That's a great um, illustration of when we see the thing and we understand the thing better. That we right. know when it's, how when to it's help. at home, when your daughter is telling me, I want to go to this person's house, but I know that they can't because that person's in a shelter and they may not be allowed to have guests or, or maybe they can, and then they will. Well, as I said, Deb, it's been a delight. I would like to have you as a staple on Thank this you. podcast. I know that um, we will continue to ask you. You're free. We'll have you be uh, um, an emeritus uh, guest on our podcast. So um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on again. And thank you for letting me be long-winded. And, you know, thank you for letting me work alongside you. It's an honor to work with both of you. And I have nothing but, you know, the most respect for both of you and the work I've seen both of you do. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, you. Yes, you, listener. Have you ever been walking down the street and someone who appeared unhoused approached you and asked for money? Do you ever walk to the train in the morning and see someone holding a sign asking for help? What do you do? Well, don't worry, we are here to help. Click the link in the description of this episode for a quick, easy to use guide packed with helpful tips for how to engage with your neighbors experiencing homelessness.